You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 35 with Yafi Lavova. Yafi is a registered dietitian nutritionist and is a published author of several books on the topic of feeding kids. She is the creator of Toddler Test Kitchen, which you'll hear a little bit more about in our conversation. It's a really cool concept. Yafi supports parents through her social media, public speaking, and Naptime Nutrition Podcast and YouTube channel. So if this conversation is leaving you wanting more, there is a lot more on her podcast and YouTube channel and social media page. So be sure to check that out. One thing that really stands out to me about this conversation that I'm about to share with you is that by working with kids, Yafi is able to sort of see the world through their perspective a little bit and tap into that innate joy that kids feel about everything. Everything is new. Everything is exciting. And for us as adults, either with helping kids develop a healthy relationship with food or for ourselves to really tap into the experience of joy and gratitude when we think about food, when we experience food. So come on with me and let's jump right in. All right, Yafi. I know that this is going to be a very easy conversation because I'm just going to have to say two words and then you're just going to run with it. (laughs) Before we get into some of the topics that we wanted to talk about, I would love if you can introduce yourself, just talk a little bit about what you do and maybe what brought you into this space. I'm Yafi. I like to think I make eating happy. That's my, (laughs) that's my goal to make eating happy. I think that we can chase health through food enjoyment rather than food fear. And I got into this space you know, a lot of people get into the space after their own issues with food. And I think I've had the same amount as your average person, but I've just really always loved nutrition. And I can tell you that roughly 12 years ago, I definitely said I will never do pediatric nutrition, but that was, you know, I said that in the hospital on a pediatric rotation, and it's definitely different talking about kids and nutrition in a hospital setting versus a community setting or in a cooking class. And I do love that. I love interacting with parents, with kids, talking about food, making food. And that's, that's what I do. That's my thing. Yeah. And it's also very different to come at it from this sort of joyful, this is fun. Let's do this in our off time, as opposed to, oh, there's a problem. Let's fix it. This is kind of somber and sad and none of your friends have to do this, but you have to. So very different vibe. It's true. It's true. And we're much more conscious of that as as a society. I mean, even with my twins, they're eight years old and one of them is in a reading intervention program and the other one's jealous because we have learned how to address certain obstacles in fun ways that's engaging. And so as far as he's concerned, his brother is in an awesome reading club. (laughs) And we can like we can take the same angle with food and with any other obstacles in childhood as well. 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about maybe why you do what you do besides for that it's fun for you because ultimately we have to do what's fun. We do. You know, <laughs> or you have to. You would not survive if you were miserable at work. Talking about the idea of what happens with kids on a diet if they don't have a healthy relationship with food, almost walking us through a worst case scenario and what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, really, when you talk to parents about what they want for their kids, you can even ask, what is it about your life and your relationship with food that you don't want to pass on to your kids? I like to speak in positives a lot. What is it that you would like to pass on? But this is an important question. And it's either what kind of messages did you get when you were growing up? Or what kind of messages are you currently absorbing from society that you don't want your kids to get a hold of? Even if a parent is currently fighting diet culture or completely immersed in it, it is very likely that they don't want their kids to get those same messages because they know what it's like to live yo-yo dieting and basing your attitude for the day on what the scale tells you is your day is going to be like. And a lot of parents don't need much prompting in order to realize that they don't want that lifestyle for their kids. So to bring up some scary statistics in the 2015 common sense media report, which of course I can tell you just off the top of my head, but you can also look up this information. 80% of young kids have been on diets. Kids, if you were to ask a five-year-old, statistically, if you were to ask a five-year-old, I feel fat, what should I do about that? The child will statistically respond, maybe go on a diet because they know- a five-year-old, they know that that's the answer based on the 2015 Common Sense Media Report. These are the messages that kids are absorbing. And we don't want them to absorb that. We want them to absorb, you know, calcium instead of diet culture. <laughs> and the truth <laughs> is that that's, it's a really good point because kids think they understand dieting. Kids think they understand everything, right? My twins are eight and I'm already a total moron to them. Already? Oh man, you didn't even get a chance. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So it depends on the topic. But the thing is that kids, they want to feel like grownups. That's the whole point of like childhood to a child. That's the whole point of childhood to get through it, to grow up. And of course, we're looking back on our kids being like, you should enjoy this. You have no <laughs> idea what you're missing out on. Much like the parents with grown kids are talking to us with young kids. I'd be like, enjoy every moment. It goes by so quickly. And you just want to say back like, I would really like to get a night of sleep without getting kicked or having someone's foot shoved up my nose, you know, but this is the same with, with little kids. They don't understand that they're supposed to just have fun. They're trying to imitate us. They're trying to be like us. They're trying to be grownups. And if they try to diet, they're going to try to do it on their own. It's very unlikely that any of those five-year-olds went to their parents and said, I want to go on a diet. How should I go about it? So kids, they're going to attempt and they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're going to start restricting I read a book this past weekend where someone was describing her diet when she was a child as a five and fit diet. She just decided with no background that she was going to eat five different foods every day. Each day she was allowed five food items and that's how she was going to be fit. Well, she was probably about six or seven when she came up with this concept. Wow. She used that for a long time. We know that as kids, we don't have accurate information but somehow we really hold on to that not accurate information for way longer than we would have if we didn't just come up with these, you know, come up with these ideas. We just hold on yeah, to that. There's something so almost comforting about using an idea that we had in childhood or that was relayed to us in childhood and keeping it going, even though it doesn't quite make so much sense anymore. It's 
kind of scary to get rid of it in some weird way. I'm going to come up with an example that I can't personally relate to, but I think it's probably pretty accurate. Imagine if you grew up celebrating Christmas, like really getting into it and there are lights and cookies and the house has the decorations and you go to the mall and sit on Santa's lap and all that. Imagine, you know, as you get to be an adult, you know that Santa Claus is not real, but the holiday season is real stressful. And isn't it kind to just take a moment and stare at that house across the street with all the lights and the Santa on the roof and just revisit your childhood and revisit what that meant? It's the same concept. I imagine I couldn't pull anything Jewish up for that example because we just don't have the same concept, (laughs) you know, like, but I think I can get into that in a Jewish aspect in a different way, like with latkes, latkes we make once a year, the house smells in a very distinct way. And no matter if you're five or 25 or 105, you smell that like you smell, oh, my husband cooked and somehow it smelled like Shabbos. And I walked into the house and I was like, smells like Shabbos because that's that comforting thing, you know? And Shabbos for me, it's not that relaxing. I have to do all the stuff. My kids are too little to help. I have to do all the things, but I still have that feeling of this is what comfort is. This is the smell that means comfort. This is the feeling that means comfort. We want to focus on that with our kids so that they're looking for comfort and and they look for that internally. All of this, all this, this whole conversation that has felt up until now, like a tangent is about to come together because, (laughs) because all of that was internal, you know, an adult's relationship with their childhood ideas of holidays. That's all internal. And we can tap into things that are internal to feel confident and to feel self-aware. And when we come up against all of these diet culture messages, those are all external messages. This is how you need to look to fit into society. This is how your outside should look. It has nothing to do with relating to anything. It has to do with you are a cog in the wheel and your cog needs to be this shape to do its job. Well, guess what? That's not true. Society is not an alarm clock with cogs. That's not how we work. We can be different shapes. We can be different sizes. And we were meant to be. Yeah, we have to be because if we try to be exactly the same as the next person, then we can't possibly tap into our potential. We're not aware of what's going on internally. And so we're just kind of like a robot that does nothing. Right. And that's exactly it. We are so unbelievably accepting of differences in a million different ways, but not waistline. Okay, let's think about this. You have two different people next to each other. Even my twins, this is great because they're twins, okay? They have different hair color. They have different eye color. They have different skin color. They have different heights. They have different builds. One has a longer torso. One has a shorter torso and longer legs. All of those are societally acceptable because they're seen as things that can't be changed. These are genetic things that we're born with. Weight is not seen as a genetic thing that you're born with. It's something that is within your power to change. But the truth is that more we find out, the more we know it's not within our power. So while even if you just look at all kinds of different hair on heads that people can have, colors, textures, lengths, and I'm talking about naturally occurring, you are going to have such an insane variety. And we don't think twice about it. But we think about our waistline Some people think about their waistline more than they think about other things, you know, more than they think about being a good parent or good at their job or a good friend or a good child, I mean, a good daughter or son. And the more we focus on our food, 
the less we end up being actually healthy. So the goal with the anti-diet movement philosophies is to think less about your food. Just pay attention to your body. Don't worry about your food so much. So when kids start to show the first signs of paying attention to their food in order to, I don't know, copy a relative or a friend or a teacher or in response to what an adult says to them, we know we're going to steer them back toward joy and appreciating what that food does for you rather than talking about what it does to you. I love that distinction. If we're going to actually go through with that, how do we do that? How? Well, you expect how? This is a this is a podcast. We just tell you what not to do. <laughs> okay. Step one, if you're not feeling confident, go change a light bulb. People think I'm crazy. This is my number one piece of nutrition advice. Go change a light bulb. The idea is starting off with a win. It doesn't have to be a light bulb. It could be a squeaky hinge. It could be a dent that you need to like suck out of the side of your door, whatever it is. Pick something that has been super annoying, but is easy to fix and fix it. And then you're going to start out feeling confident. When we start out with confidence, it's so much easier to take steps toward health, either our own or helping someone else like parenting. It feels much easier to help your child understand complex health concepts when you're in a good mood, you know, like when you fix the light bulb and had a cup of coffee or 10. So start with something easy, get yourself in a good place then you're going to laugh. That might mean reading a joke. And that might mean looking for laughing baby videos on YouTube. I love that. This is more about getting yourself in the right place. Okay. That's actually quite funny. Yeah. I love watching. Honestly, this is going to sound really funny given who I am and what I do. I don't have a history of really liking kids too much. Really? Isn't that hysterical? Yeah. But so I like, I need to get myself in a good place. I need to like really focus on this before I relate to my kids. Cause I do have a short fuse. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is for anybody to think about if they go into a situation, stressful, not stressful, neutral. If you go in after experiencing something exciting or fun before the entire experience is different as opposed to experiencing something stressful beforehand, then I mean, it's so, so different. It is so different. And I say that I don't have a history of being good with kids because it's in the past. Since I learned that you relate with kids through joy, I've gotten much better at kids in general, specifically my own. So you're saying in order to relate to kids, maybe work on your own joy first. Yes. You have to come at it with joy. As a parent, that's going to mean faking it sometimes. And that's okay. It's okay. Sometimes that's what it is to be a parent. We save it up and then we fall down later when they go to sleep. And that's a whole other topic we can talk about. Yes. Whole podcast on its own. But start with joy. Work on your own joy. If you don't have joy with food, then when you're working with kids, fake it while working on that. And if you don't have joy with food, if you find food to be something very stressful and you're trying to pass something better to your kids, certainly consider getting help for yourself because you deserve it. There's a stigma around getting help, particularly with nutrition, because obviously everyone should understand the complexities of nutrition. (laughs) And they'll tell you that they will too. You deserve to have appropriate and compassionate help to get you to a place where you can feel joyful so that passing it on to your kids is an organic act and you don't have to put more effort into it. So that's the thing. Ideally, your child's soundtrack, your childhood soundtrack is your laughter their laughter, your partner's laughter, everyone laugh, you know, and 
the way that you speak to your kids becomes their internal voice. So when you spend more time laughing and joking and relating in a kind and gentle way, that's how they're going to speak to themselves as they grow up. They're going to completely internalize your voice. Isn't that great? If you think about your internal voice that you have, that's yelling at you telling you that you need to step on the scale and telling you that you need to not eat that Snickers bar, that's the internal voice you don't want them to have. So give them something positive. We have to give them something. We can't just not give them the diet voice. We need to give them the non-diet voice. We do that through having fun together. And my main way is cooking together. That's my thing. If you don't like cooking and you don't like cooking with kids, then find something different that you can do joyfully. If you're not doing it joyfully, it's not your way. Maybe you like gardening. Maybe you like pretending to garden and you can go to you know Trader Joe's or... Home Depot and get these little potted herbs and put them on your windowsill and water them once. And guess what? You're a gardener and you have an herb garden. (laughs) It doesn't have to be authentic. I mean, you can start an actual garden in your backyard or you can round up the kids and go to a local you pick and go to someone else's farm and pick what they've grown. You know, like it's all about having fun. It's all about looking for opportunities to smile next to food. That's the equation. So just the positive association with food, with eating, with family is where it's at. It's just about introducing food to your smile and not in an eating kind of way, just as in a, there's food and there's a smile on my face. That's the goal. If that means you are emptying a couple of gallons of ice cream into a baby plastic pool and... Oh no, where's this going? An ice cream fight. I live in Arizona. Oh, you have to do it. It's 118 degrees and I've got an opportunity to throw ice cream at my child. Maybe I'm going to do that. Yeah. Or you can be the person who says it's 118 degrees. I am just going to be miserable and yell at my kids. Then that's going to be a very, very different memory in your kids' lives. Yeah. And I don't mean for this to be adding pressure. You're not going to be constantly creating valuable memories. I mean, your life is not a scrapbook. You're going to have real moments where you get frustrated and you're going to have real moments when you just don't want the kids in the kitchen with you or even at the table with you. Those are real moments and that's okay. And that's why they're counterbalanced by these other moments. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about what you should do with kids, the message comes across that like, this is how you have to be a hundred percent of the time. Because now that you're a parent, you are expected to be a Barbie made out of plastic and you no longer have any feelings of your own. All of your energy goes towards making a perfect diorama of a life for your child. No, you still get to be a human. You have to be a human. Sometimes the most powerful moments maybe not very, very, very little kids, but the most powerful moments are saying, I made a mistake and I'm sorry to your kid being a human. Yeah. That was a difficult concept for me to get when I was talking to another mom when my kids were small, because she was talking about the importance of apologizing to your kids. And I was afraid that if you use too many opportunities to apologize, it gives your kids a sense that you don't know what you're doing. And it gives them a sense of lack of safety. And yeah, if you are constantly saying, I'm sorry, I screwed up all the time. That's a problem. And maybe there are other things to look at. But if you make a mistake, yeah, I told you I was going to buy you new tzitzit and the store closed and I didn't get together with the shop owner and I'm really sorry. And I know that your tzitzit are falling apart and you want new tzitzit. I'm working on it. That's okay. That's okay. It's liberating to own it and say, it's okay. You know, as an adult, I'm not perfect either and things are going to happen. I have a question. This might be too much of a segue. So let me know if you don't want to go there just yet. 
you said that your thing is cooking with your kids. How young do you cook with your kids? Because I know if like two-year-old can't exactly help you chop veggies. A two-year-old can't help you chop. I'm going to send you a plane ticket to come observe Pablo Tess Kitchen. I've got kids chopping younger than two, actually. My class is two to six. And I do give two-year-olds knives, safe knives, toddler knives. I was well, you know what? Let me pause you for a second. Can yeah. you share with the listeners what you're talking about, what your toddler test kitchen is? Yeah. So the toddler test kitchen is a cooking adventure in the Phoenix area for kids ages two through six. I created the program. I teach most of the classes, not the Saturday ones, sometimes not the Sunday ones. So we just cook together and we have fun. And it's always a, a veggie or fruit forward type of dish. It's always vegan friendly, not because vegan is ideal, but because vegan is a catch-all with everyone's food issues. And we just have fun cooking together. And that's the whole point. It's just having fun cooking together. When I was growing up, my parents used to um, take over their the local synagogue and they would take over the youth group. My mom was always telling me, it's important to hang out with other kids with the same background and not in a religious way, just hanging out, just spending time together. She was so right because when we only get together when there's something religious or a big event, that's a lot of pressure, much like there's a lot of pressure at the dining room table. But when you shift the focus and you're suddenly going laser tag with your youth group, it's got nothing to do with any holidays. It's got nothing to do with anything religious. That's where you create meaningful relationships. And by cooking together and being away from the actual table, that's you giving your child an opportunity to create a relationship with their food and a relationship with their appetite. The reason why it's important to do this at a place that's not the dining room table, at least in theory, you can cook at the dining room table. It's not set up like a a table that you're about to eat on. The reason why this is different is because you don't have the pressure of the table. It's completely free. You're doing an activity that does not require any bites at all, and nobody's expecting them. Even if you are doing division of responsibility perfectly at the table, you're at the table. And for some kids, that's enough pressure to cause some discomfort. Taking it into the kitchen or into the garden takes off that pressure. And you're going to find that more kids are going to take bites of things in their raw form when they're cooking or gardening, as opposed to when they're at the table, because there is zero pressure. It's like the anti-pressure. I have to tell people during my class, allow your kids to taste. I have I have brought extra ingredients. I understand if we are making my marinated tofu lettuce wraps, by the time we get to actually taking a bite, there is not going to be any chopped up pineapple at any one station. And I'm going to be coming around again with the pineapple and say, okay, this time put it in the wrap rather than in your face. (laughs) And I tell parents, be prepared for that. That's a good thing. That's your child experimenting. And you don't even know how that's going to go sometime. One time I was doing veggie sushi and I brought in my favorite ingredient in in veggie sushi is pickled daikon. It's bright yellow and it's crunchy and it's sweet. And it just like when paired with that avocado and the carrot and cucumber, it just sets off all those flavors in such a nice way. So I made some pickled daikon and I brought it for this class. Wouldn't you know it? You would think that the cucumbers would disappear or the carrots this daikon was gone. The kids wow. went nuts for it. It was vinegary and it has a slight undertaste, like sweet undertaste, but it's really when it's paired with the other things that that comes out. You just don't know. And that's why it's important to present a variety in a very gentle way 
and just to have fun. And just put it out as if it's a food and not like, oh, this is labeled a junk food. This is labeled the food you have to eat. And this is the labeled the food that no one really wants to eat. And therefore they make their decision based on that. Right. And I've also heard people kind of direct their kids away from a savory food toward a more sweet food. And I've also heard of parents getting confused when their kids choose more savory foods and more complex flavors over what they would have expected. Like a child who really has a thing for mushrooms and you give that same child a cupcake and they take a bite and say, this is too sweet. That's okay. Don't direct them to eat the cupcake. Let them have their own experiences. And if the child has the opposite and they don't like the mushrooms and they do like the cupcake, well, you're probably talking to me because well, that's me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's okay too. So just going back to the, you have kids younger than two, what does it actually look like? What are your, the kids doing, your kids, the kids you're working with, what are they doing? What does it look like? Is there a way we can do that? Yeah, definitely. What it looks like, it depends on where they're coming from. Some of the two-year-olds who come to my class have been cooking with their parents for a while already, and they hit the ground running. And some of the other ones, the parents are nervous about them even using a peeler, never mind the knife, because they just haven't had any exposure. And that's going to look a little bit different. But when you can get tools that have a wide grip and are stable, much like a peeler with a wide grip or a chef's knife with a wide grip, these toddler-focused tools, kids are going to be confident with it. The parent also has to be confident. So if the parent is really nervous and is watching their child like this, that's going to cause stress for the kid. So what the parent is going to do then is make adaptations. Either they're going to maybe switch out with the other partner who isn't as nervous about these things, or you can do things like hand over hand or taking turns. Okay, you peel that, you do two peels on that carrot, and then it's my turn. That can help with the parents' confidence as well. Usually the kids don't need help with their confidence. You also want to make sure that they have the right height. Sometimes that means getting a, a step stool to bring them up to the counter. But if you don't want to spend $300 on that fancy kitchen step stool, bring it to the floor, get everything on the floor. You can be on your knees, sitting on your tush. It gives you good leverage. You just don't want a situation where the countertop is chest high or over because then the child is not going to have the right muscular movements, not the right motion to feel confident cutting. Also, if you have something round like a carrot or a cucumber, you want to cut it lengthwise so it doesn't move around while the child's trying to cut it. You know, set the kid up for success. If you're nervous about a plastic child's knife, like a toddler vinyl knife, then use a butter knife. I don't like suggesting plastic knives. I like metal butter knives instead because plastic knives can break and you're actually more likely to hurt yourself than with a metal butter knife. That metal butter knife is not going to hurt you and it's not going to break. Yeah. And sometimes plastic knives are actually quite sharp. Yes, they can be. And the thing is that sometimes they're the wrong kind of sharp where they are sharp enough to slide off of a tomato and cut a finger. Whereas these kids' knives are the exact opposite. We'll cut a tomato, but not so much a finger. I used to like the Curious Chef knives, but they really raised their price over pandemic. And I thought that was unconscionable. So I'm going with other <laughs> companies now. But there are toddler knives. If you can find a three set for $9 on Amazon, go for it. I love that. You mentioned division of responsibility. This is something that 
I'm not a hundred percent familiar with, and I just want to know if you can share a little bit more about what that is. I'm assuming our listeners are probably not that familiar with it either. I don't know. I'm calling baloney stories on that. I think you know exactly what it is. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) But for your listeners, for your listeners, okay. Division of responsibility. It's a phrase and it was by um, Ellen Satter. She came up with this in the eighties. She is a dietitian as well as a family therapist. And division of responsibility is just the idea that there are responsibilities that belong to the parent and responsibilities that belong to a child at the table. And that the responsibilities that belong to the parent are only the parent's responsibilities. And the same with the child. The child's responsibilities are only the child's responsibilities. And when you try to allow a child to have adult's responsibilities, you get friction in the same way the other way. So the parent's responsibilities or the caretakers are the where, when, and what of the meal. Where is the meal, which is ideally pretty consistent. I mean, I'm not gonna knock anyone on a picnic. Picnics are fun. But in general, meals are in a consistent place. When the meal is, should be consistent as well, consistent time, and what the meal is, what's on the table. A caveat to that is that you as a parent can put whatever you want on that table, but it's best to include a safe or familiar item that your child readily accepts. A lot of times this is a carb, this is bread or crackers, sandwiches, pasta, rice, whatever it is that's your kid's safe food, that's what you're going to include. And ideally they have a rotation of safe foods and that's your rotation of safe foods for your meals. The child is in charge of whether they eat or not. They decide whether they're skipping a meal. And it's very common in the toddler years specifically to skip meals, particularly dinner. It's very, very common. A lot of parents take that as a behavioral thing. It is not a behavioral thing. It is the child responding directly to their biological signals. And that's something that should be encouraged. It shouldn't be seen as a behavioral issue. So they're in charge of whether or not they will eat and how much they will eat. It's not the parent's job to say this many bites of this or that many bites of that. It is not the child's job to say, I want peanut butter and jelly sandwich when that's not on the table. This takes a lot of proactive thought on the side of the parent as far as presenting that safe food. And it takes some practice. It's not perfect right off the bat. It takes some practice and a little bit of tweaking as well, particularly if you've got kids who may be neurodiverse on the autism spectrum. So what does using division of responsibility actually do? How does it help? Division of responsibility sets up a very clear feeding dynamic where the child is completely in charge of what affects their body, what touches their body, what goes inside their body. Instead of talking about eating, let's talk about kissing. Let's just trade one-to-one, okay? Kissing is considered an intimate act because you are putting something that's foreign against your lips, that being another person, right? That's considered an intimate act, but eating is not considered an intimate act. And I'm gonna flip that on its head, okay? The idea of taking something that is outside of the body, picking it up, interacting with it in an extremely meaningful way, I mean, chewing it and swallowing it, putting it inside your body, this is the definition of an intimate act. And this is an intimate act that your child is having with that food. That's something that's very pure. It needs to be left alone and it needs to be seen with the gravity of what it is. This is a huge thing. There are 32 pre-feeding steps. And because it's a trademarked 
philosophy. I can't talk about what exactly those steps are, but the idea that there are 32 steps from seeing a piece of food to swallowing a piece of food, and that each of those steps is its own accomplishment on the feeding journey. Seeing that, seeing that whole picture is absolutely essential for the parent. That takes away a lot of stress on the parent because if you think that the only success is swallowing, then everything short of that is going to be failure. And failure is going to destroy your self-confidence as a parent. It's going to impact your child because they pick up on that stress and it's going to affect them because they're going to feel like a failure as well. If instead you can understand and truly internalize that there are 30 two victories on the way to a swallow, then that will make you as the parent, as the caretaker, feel more confident in the feeding dynamic. And it's going to bolster the child's confidence. That confidence leads to an adventurous attitude. And before you know it, before you know it, meaning like 25 years later, you have a child (laughs) who is choosing to eat, fill in the blank. If instead you have a list of foods that your child is required to eat, I can then take that list of foods and show you exactly the foods your child will never choose to touch when they're out from under your your roof. Yeah. I'm thinking about this almost juxtaposed to the therapeutic process in that so many people come and they say, I want this fixed, this symptom, get rid of it, this behavior decreased. And it's not really so much about, I mean, it is obviously the point is not to have those symptoms anymore. But my understanding is the curiosity and the process is actually what gets you the end goal. But the end goal really is the process. And so you can't get there without doing the process, without the curiosity, without the adventure, which is kind of what you're saying. It's not so much about the swallow, which, okay, ultimately, yeah, you'd like that if you're interested in your kid being a little bit more adventurous with food but you're forgetting all of the pieces in between. Right. And all of those pieces, that's where the fun is. I post some activities on my Instagram and I certainly hit on a lot with my fun with food toddler cookbook, but a good friend of mine, Danny Leibovitz is on Instagram as kid.food.explorers. And I swear every time, every time I give an interview, every time I write, every time I speak, I turn into a commercial for her because she just produces these fantastic ideas, these fantastic books. She's got coloring books that have zero, zero dieting message that are just coloring in fruits and vegetables. And did you know facts in like books, she has books and books of, did you know facts about fruits and vegetables? And not one thing has to do with calories or dieting or body size, or if you don't eat this, this is what's going to happen. If you look on her Instagram, she's got all of these games and I mean, like bowling with Brussels sprouts. That's what it's about. It's so cool. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Bowling for Brussels sprouts. That's one I certainly stole with proper credit, of course, for the book, Fun with Food Toddler Cookbook. But that's her whole platform is just playing with food. It's just bringing together food and smiles. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. So let's just say we're incredible at this and our kids are really adventurous, having fun with food. What about the world we live in and that we go to whoever our neighbor's house or a family member's house and they're still immersed in diet culture and they're still forcing their kids to have more food or they're saying, oh, you can't have that extra piece of pie because you're fat. Or even expanding this question, they go to school and their teachers are teaching them things with implicit bias and diet culture messages. What do you do then? 
It would be wonderful to live in a bubble, wouldn't it? (laughs) I very often think about some alter ego of mine who is living in some kind of hippie commune in in Colorado, riding my bike everywhere, right? That would be great (laughs) for us to live in a bubble and never hear diet culture messages. And it would be even better for our kids if we could give that to them. The truth is we just can't. And we need to raise kids who are able to function in the world as it exists. It would be wonderful to raise kids with all of our ideals, but we need them to be able to take our ideals and use them in a way that helps them function in the world as messed up as it currently is. And with all the personalities they're going to meet and all of the ideas they're going to come across. It's also very important to model respect for your kids and to model how to handle different concepts. And that's where this comes in. Your kids are going to hear things that you don't want them to hear. And that sucks. It really does. You can't prevent it. And it would be a problem if you could, if you did. You can't censor people around you. It's not healthy for your relationship with people around you. It's also not healthy for your kids. They need to see how you deal with these things and how you deal with that is going to change as they get older and who's making those comments. If it's a grandmother who babysits every afternoon, It's going to be a different approach than if it's a family dinner at a reunion that happened across the country and you're not going to see these people for another 15 years. The truth is that regardless of which situation it is, the loudest message comes from home. The loudest message comes from those who are closest to us. And when you send the message over and over again that food is to be enjoyed, that all foods fit, that all bodies are good bodies, and that we have an inclusive message and we care for people beyond what they look like, your kids are going to hear that. They are going to grow up with that. And hopefully they are going to be able to even seep some of that onto their friends at school by saying certain things. You know, we have a lot of influence that happens at school by teachers, by other students. And if we can give our kids this message, maybe they're going to be spreading that gentle message as well. Or not so gentle when it comes to Yafi and she gets involved in the school and lets everybody know her opinion. (laughs) Well, when it comes to dealing with kids, I'm gentle. When it comes to dealing with adults, I do it with a smile. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just give me off the bat, can you give me an example of how you've kind of interacted with either some publications or some school systems to kind of, you know, maybe gently, not so gently let them know that what they're doing is kind of harmful? I start off gentle. Okay. So if you think about it, most teachers who are directly teaching your kids, let's say this is a public school because public schools have more, more regulation as far as credentials of their teachers and all that. So your teachers, a lot of them have masters, right? And your school administration have higher level degrees. I have a degree in nutrition. Do I know everything about nutrition? No. My entire degree in nutrition, I learned one class what division of responsibility is, an entire degree. So what I'm trying to show is that me with a nutrition degree did not get this education that I provide to people who've got, let's say, degrees in history, arts, education, the common degrees that you find with teachers, math. If I didn't get it in nutrition, they didn't get it in their degree. Okay. Am I going to hold them responsible for that? Well, yeah, I'm going to hold them responsible because they're dealing with my kid, but am I going to blame them for not having that information? Am I going to call them negligent for not being educated regarding the feeding dynamic with children? No, they learned childhood development from a teaching perspective, and it didn't necessarily relate to feeding. 
And that also means that when I have the opportunity to speak to teachers and administrators and I talk about childhood developing, they're going to catch on very quickly to what I'm saying, and it's going to make sense pretty quickly. It doesn't mean that they've been exposed to this information before, and it doesn't mean they know how to use it in a classroom setting. So I always start with gentleness. I come from the attitude, you have made the choice to make your life's work teaching my kids. You have made an extremely compassionate decision, taking your energy and putting it towards the betterment of my family and my community. I'm not going to come out with guns blazing. You know, I'm going to see this activity where the child has to track their food. And I'm going to say, yeah, I really hate that activity. That is completely awful. I might scream about it to my friend, right? I might call... (laughs) You call me. I'll call you and send you like a nice little. (laughs) But if I have the opportunity to speak to that teacher, I'm going to say, I'm not a fan of this activity. Here's why I'm not a fan of this activity. Here's how I would suggest changing it so that it's more appropriate and sends one, two, three messages. I'm not going to yell. I'm going to know that that person made an entire, entire life's choice around helping my kids. I'm going to have a conversation. If they kick back and egos get involved, I might get stronger. There's plenty of evidence to support what I counsel. And so many times, so many times, especially in a school setting, we're going after what's happening in that moment as opposed to what's happening years down the line. Sometimes we can only deal with that moment. So I would love to get in front of more schools. I would love to talk to more schools to just have that opportunity to talk about how what they've already learned applies to feeding and how they can do that in the classroom in order to give their kids the best success to minimize eating disorders or disordered eating in general, to minimize negative body images, to minimize bullying. That's a big one. And I love the way that you're describing your approach to addressing the situation because we can swap this example out for basically anything that doesn't agree with us. And we can come at it. We can be so, so angry. We can vent to our friends, to our family, whatever it is. But when you come at it to the person directly, to come at it with respect, not assuming that they're out to get you, use gentle words. And sure, if need be to get a little bit more emphatic or stronger, if they push back, but ultimately to kind of organize the way that you approach things in a very gentle way. Well, and speaking of that same gentle way, if you have a spouse who's not on board, see, this is different if you've got a relative who's making comments. If you've got a spouse who's not on board with it, sometimes that can get really complicated and you may seek some kind of couples counseling to help get you on board. If the impact isn't huge, you can also take a step back and think, I'm showing my kids how people can have different philosophies and how we can respect that. That's something that comes up in my marriage a lot, honestly. My husband and I have different ideas with different things. And I can remind myself, he also is allowed to parent. He has as much right to parent as I do. When it comes to food, no, I put my foot down and I told him, I'm a pediatric dietitian. What happens at the table is my business. The same way what happens with like a mortgage is his business. He's got a degree in finance. We all have our strengths. And within a marriage, you honor your own individual strengths, right? And that's that's with the kids too. You can have disagreements. And if I refuse to count bites, but my husband is counting bites and he's really only eating with them on the weekends, okay, 
I can talk to him about it. He may or may not change his mind. He may or may not change his actions. But when we have this situation, just come back to that idea. Smile plus food. What can I do with this situation to make it as happy as possible? And that's that's the right way. Yeah. And highlighting this idea that it's not only about the food. It's not only about the feeding process. It's about your relationships. It's about joy. It's about so, so much more. It is. And I would actually argue that the place of the dining room table is lesser food and to a greater extent, revisiting and strengthening interpersonal connections between family members. Absolutely. That's what we're there for. You can eat all over the house. You can eat standing over the sink. Not that I'm advising it. We've all done it. Probably do it again. But the whole idea is just making smiles around food. You know, use that opportunity. Look at the table as an opportunity to present variety joyfully. And on that same note, if you argue over while your child is eating one of their safe foods, if a couple argues in front of their child while they're eating, that food could turn into a less selected food because of the association. So we want to avoid fighting at all at the table. I also am not a fan of quizzing at the table. You know, my kids are doing multiplication tables. I'm not quizzing them at the table. I am quizzing them all the rest of the day, not while we're eating. Such important things to keep in mind. If anybody wants to continue this conversation with you, how can they find you? I am at babybloomnutrition.com and yafi at babybloomnutrition.com. And you have a wonderful Instagram page as well. I do. I'm, I'm on Instagram, toddler. And YouTube. I'm a, oh, YouTube. How can I forget? YouTube, I have Naptime Nutrition, which is my free channel. It's got about 180 videos on it, ranging in length from 15 minutes to an hour plus on all kinds of nutrition and parenting. And that's all free. And go right ahead. Have fun with that. Got that. And, and I'm turning those into podcasts as well. And you can find all that on naptimenutrition.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I love doing this. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.